Are you ready for God's Word? Absolutely. We've been talking about the abundant life. This series has reached sermon number seven. I fully plan to conclude it today. But as I was looking over my notes last night, I felt like the Lord might be having me do one more, so don't hold it against me if I, if I come back from the holiday and we do one more. But today, we have something very, very simple. It's going to be a very simple message. I don't have a bunch of points. I have one big point and then one sub point. Super easy, okay? One big point, one sub point. The big point is the title, Be Grateful. Come on now. How many of you know gratitude? An attitude of gratitude is powerful, so important in our life. Be grateful. Some of you are thinking, I got this down, Pastor. I'm grateful. No problem. Good, good. But in case you don't, I'm going to preach it anyway. And if you really are, uh, are set, then nudge the person next to you and go ahead and tell them, this is for you. <laughs> this is for you. No, I'm just kidding. Leave the person next to you alone. Receive it in your own heart. But I will tell you this, that the Bible tells us that more, more than we think struggle with this idea of gratitude. How do I know this? Because there is a story in God's Word, specifically in Luke 17, that talks about ungratitude or being ungrateful. What do you mean? Well, there's a story where Jesus Christ heals 10 lepers. How many of you are familiar with the story? Raise your hand. If you could use a, a little touch-up on it, go ahead and let me know. All right, couple of you. Very, very simple. There are 10 lepers. They are outcasts because it's a communal disease, and it's very, very contagious. And in those days, they were considered unclean. That means they were put outside the city gate. That means you would form a colony with other unclean and you would have a meager existence because you wouldn't be allowed to participate in the economy of, of the cities. Therefore, you had to find a way to live, and most of the time, you were dependent on the generosity and the gifts of others. Also, many people would throw scraps and stuff over the city wall or outside the city, that's called the dump, and you would find uh, what you needed there. It was, it was very, very hard. And so when they see Jesus and they've heard of Jesus healing others, they thought, wow, could this be our time? Could he extend grace to us? Could he heal us? And so they begin to cry out to Jesus, have mercy on us, Lord. Have mercy on us. Jesus heals them. But this is how he did it. He said, according to the law, you were to go and show yourself to the priests. They are to examine you and to make sure that you are now clean, that you have no uh, remnant of the disease. So I need you to go. They're like, but we're still lepers. He said, go. In faith, they went. I don't know when, but at some point between the time they left and the time they arrived, they were healed. What's interesting is the Bible tells us that only one came back to seek Jesus out to say, thank you. Only one. So it wouldn't be a far stretch to say that the default position is one of being ungrateful. It wouldn't be a far stretch to say that 90% of people tend to be ungrateful. 
and only 10% tend to be truly grateful. You say, yeah, those are the non-Christians. But think about this with me for a second. Every one of those that had been healed was graced by God. We as Christians have been healed by God's grace. What does that mean? Though we didn't deserve it, we were unclean, we were outside of God's kingdom, and God brought us in through the healing of our sins and by the magnificent shedding of his blood and washing us in his grace. He completely healed us. But I still think that this is something we need to consider because far too many of us forget. Isn't it human nature to forget? Come on, how many of us have ever prayed to God for a blessing only to get it and realize that it's not as shiny as it once was? Isn't that the truth? I can remember being a kid asking my dad, Dad, I would really love this mountain bike. This is when mountain bikes were first coming out. It was like a $400 mountain bike. This is uh, not too long ago. I, 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 you know, I was about to say this is ages ago, but, but this was quite a bit ago. And I can remember making all kinds of deals with my dad, and my dad said, um, I'm not sure you can handle a bike that is this expensive. And I said, sure I can. I'm tall enough. And I thought he was talking about my size. He said, no, responsibility-wise, you weren't very grateful for the last bike I got you. I promise, Dad, I promise, I promise, I promise, only to receive the bike on Christmas and to be overjoyed with gratitude for about a month. You say, but that's what happens when you're young. Can I tell you it happens when you're older, too? Come on, how many of us have prayed for a new house? How many of us have prayed for a new car? How many of us have prayed for a new position and now find ourselves complaining about the work we have to do? Find ourselves complaining about the yard has gotten bigger. Found ourselves complaining about, oh, it's so hard to go and take care of a second home. It's so hard to do this. It's so hard to do. Come on now. Am I talking to anybody or someone here saying, no, not for us. That's for third service. We'll, we'll just hang in here with you, but that's third service, Pastor. Preach it to them. Okay, because the truth of the matter is, if you're going to talk about gratitude, you've got to at least hit ingratitude or complaining and grumbling. Because if you want to know what one is, you've got to make sure you don't do the other. Isn't that true? And if you're going to talk about complaining and grumbling, you've got to at least hit the children of Israel in the wilderness. Isn't that true? They kind of have that lesson down packed on what it is to complain and grumble. And if we're going to understand the children of Israel and their story, I want you to understand that God is a purposeful God, is he not? How many of you know God has a purpose for all he does, and he is intentional? He's not haphazard. He's not just willy-nilly doing whatever comes to mind. He has a plan and a purpose, and this is why prophecy is so powerful to people. Because they see God's hand and his purpose unfolding through the ages. And he speaks plainly and he makes the end known from the beginning. Like only he can. And so when you find out that he has a purposeful plan, you also have to consider this. That our place or our position determines our perspective. So position or place determines our perspective. Perspective. That means where you're sitting in the auditorium of life will determine what you see. Meaning, 
if you're up here up close and personal, you're going to see something way different than if you're sitting way in the back of this humongous coliseum behind one of the support beams. If you're in the cheap seat behind the support beam and you got to keep, you can't even see the jumbotron of life, you're, you're going to have a very different perspective than the guy sitting right up front. You say, well, that's just me. Woe is me. Life's never been fair to me. I've never gotten the good seat. You know what I've learned? That the good seat, many times you just have to get there early enough and care enough to come sit in front. Some of you are saying, Pastor, are you talking about like this auditorium? No, no, no. I'm talking about the auditorium of life. And I learned this uh, in school that my, my professor said, if you want to pass my class, sit in the T. The T is up front and down the middle. And if you sit up front or down the middle, you will increase your, your, your grade by an entire letter. So if you're a C student, you'll be a B student. If you're a B student, you'll be an A student. If you're an A student, you'll be an A plus student. Because where you sit does matter. And so many times, how, where we sit determines how and what we see. And how and what we see will determine how we feel and what we do. So notice what I'm saying. God is a purposeful God. And he has a purpose. But you have to understand that your place or position will determine your perspective, meaning your place is where you find yourself, and where you find yourself will determine how and what you see, and how and what you see will determine what you do ultimately. You go, but what does this have to do with anything? It has to do with the children of Israel. Because watch, they began after 400 years to cry out to the Lord for help. And as they cried out to the Lord for help, God began to talk to Moses. So listen, they cried out to God, God talked to Moses. But from where they sat, they couldn't perceive that God was doing anything. And so many times from where we sit, we don't see the hand of God moving. Why? Because we have a limited perspective, a limited viewing range. We can't see around the corner. God can. We can't see over the hill. God can. See, God is high and lifted up, and he sits in heaven, and he looks down. He can see the end from the beginning. All we can see is two inches in front of our nose. And while we talk to God, God is working on a deliverer, but we think he's doing nothing. But let me share something with you, that even when God is doing nothing, he's doing something. Can you get this? Because even when God is doing nothing, he's doing something. And that something might be more for you than you will ever know. You say, but pastor, why doesn't he do that something quickly? Because maybe you haven't learned the lesson quickly. You go, well, what kind of lesson could he be showing me? How about a lesson of gratitude? He said, I'm not going to move until you're grateful. But how can I be grateful if you haven't moved? Because I've done enough already. Amen. You just haven't had eyes to see it. So when you have eyes to see it, no, but, but Lord, but Lord, I want to see it here. No, you've got to see it here before you can see it here. Yeah. Amen. You've got to, oh, come on now. 
Maybe this section will understand this. See, sometimes we get the wrong idea of God, and we think that God is a genie that we just rub, and he does whatever we want, when we want, how we want, for as long as we want. And God says, no, not until you get the right perspective of me, not till you understand what my word says of me, that I am high and lifted up, and I am great and mighty, and I move on my timetable, and you are in my universe. I'm not in yours. Therefore, begin to worship me ahead of time and in spite of your circumstance, knowing that I am doing something even when you don't see what I'm doing. I'm doing something because I work all things for the good of those who love me and are called according to my purpose, but you got to trust me. Amen? Amen? Come on now. I'm trying to help somebody if you let me. Man, I like second service. Second service let me preach a little bit. First service was so quiet. Second service said, now we're going to have a little fun. We're having fun? Let's do this. See, because the truth of the matter is, they didn't understand that God was talking to Moses. Just like many times we don't understand that God's already working on our provision. He's already working things out. And in the midst, we act a fool. We forget And we start responding in frustration and demanding that God would do more. And so, I want to say a couple more things about this idea of thanksgiving before we launch into their story. Because the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians, in everything give thanks. Notice that that's hard. Because he didn't say in some things... He didn't say in the things you agree on. He didn't say if you like it or if it matches up with your plan. He says in. And so you know what I'm always tempted to do? I don't know if you're tempted. When I see something hard in God's word, I try to go to the Greek to see if the Greek maybe gives me a loophole. But you'll be surprised what the Greek says. The Greek says everything. That means in everything give thanks. Because in everything, God working out whatever the circumstance, the situation is for your good. He's working it out, but you've got to have something very, very important. You have to have faith that God is faithful. Can you hear me on that? You have to have faith that God is faithful. And it takes, it takes faith to be grateful. It takes faith to be grateful. What do you mean it takes faith to be grateful? Because when you have faith, you know, Lord, you're already going to take care of this. I may not understand. I may not see it. I may not have the perspective you have, but I know. Why? Because you've never failed me. You haven't brought me this far just to drop me. There's not been a place in my life where I can point to you and say, God, you owe me and you are so wrong in the way you deal with me. Instead, it's the exact opposite. Though I don't deserve it, you keep being faithful. Therefore, I've learned that I can trust you because I need you to understand something. The New Testament teaches us this, that faith, when you, when you enter into a relationship with God, it has to be by faith. The book of Hebrews says, without faith, you cannot know God or please him, meaning you've got to trust him. That's why I find it so interesting when I listen to these uh, atheist skeptics, and, and I love listening to philosophical thought, but it's so ridiculous 
because they want God to prove himself to them and he's done enough for them to have faith. But they refuse to have faith. They refuse it. Anyway, that's another story. And so when you enter into a relationship with God on, based on his faithfulness that he's been proving to you and he draws you in, then you begin to know hope. Because the, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5 that your faith will be met with opposition. That's, watch this, stay with me on this. You're going to have troubles and tribulations and persecutions, and you're going to have all sorts of challenges, but your faith will be strengthened in perseverance. And as you persevere, it will give way to hope. And hope is not just, oh, maybe perhaps it'll happen. No, it's, in a, it's a certainty in God's word. Hope is certainty. So I'm, my faith begins to be certain, certain of what? That God loves me. And this is why the Apostle Paul says, and now abideth faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love, because through faith, God is bringing you into a love relationship with him. Through a love relationship with him. But you've got to, listen to me very closely, you've got to engage him in faith. And the way you engage him in faith is to be grateful even though you don't see exactly what's going on. I'm still grateful because I know who you are, Lord, and you are good. You are good, and that settles the matter. And this is why I go to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 3. But if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So you go, well, what is love? What is love, right? I, I, you know, they've been asking that question. And you know what I find interesting? That we throw around the word love a lot. I mean, we say, I love this. Oh, I love the Cowboys. I, I love uh, your shirt. I love your hat, brother. It's a Harley Davidson hat. Awesome. I love tacos, but I also love my wife. <laughs> like I love tacos and my wife? No, that's not true. I love my wife way more than tacos. I love my wife way more than tacos. And so then what kind of love are we talking about? And so when I study uh, my word, I always use uh, the parallel feature on my program, and I can bring in other versions next to the version I usually study. And I usually study out of the New King James Version, but then I'll bring other versions to see how they describe what I'm reading in the New King James. Amen. And so when I go to the amplified version, it says this, but if anyone loves God, that means to be awe-filled. So it's describing this idea of love, that it's not the same as just this word we throw around so casually. It's significant, and, it, and the significance is it's awe-filled reverence, obedience, and gratitude. Awe-filled reverence, obedience, and gratitude. He is known by God, watch this, and his very own as his very own, and is greatly loved. So it's describing a relationship, but a relationship based on all-filled reverence, obedience, and gratitude. That means, Lord, I have an awesome wonder towards you. You're not common and ordinary. And so we should treat his word with that same reverence, because his word is how we know him. That's why we say he is a God of his word. 
that we worship his name. Why? Because his name represents his word. Isn't that still the truth? Isn't that still true today? If someone has no name and their name is trash, that means you have no word. But if you're a man of your word, then your name becomes something. Well, he is a God of his word. He is a God of great name. And that's why we worship his holy name. You say, Pastor, this sounds like we should be humble before him. Exactly. Because I've also learned that a lack of humility means a lack of gratitude. How so? Well, where does most complaining come from if not from a prideful spirit? Like, Lord, I know there's 8 billion people in this world, and I know a lot have it worse than me, but doggone it, I'm special. Why am I having such a bad day? Lord, I should have a better time at this. It's not fair that things keep going wrong for me. Oh, we, we never say that when we complain. Of course we don't say it. But isn't that what we're living? Isn't that what we're doing when we're saying, yeah, it's just about me, myself, and I. Who cares about the guy over here? Who cares about the girl over there? Who cares about any of those challenges? I'm talking about me because it's hard and it's rough and I've got this pain and I've got this issue and I've got this circumstance and I've got all these things happening. And Lord, I don't like it. And what have he said? And who are you? Well, I'm your beloved. <laughs> then act like it. Amen? Amen? Is anybody hearing me? See, this is why the Bible says, do all things without complaining and disputing. In another version, it says without arguing or grumbling. We'll see that in a second. That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. That's why I say, if you're a child of God, then act like it. Because others are watching. And you represent his name. You bear his name. Among whom you shine as lights in a dark world. I like the amplified version. It says, do all things without grumbling or fault finding and complaining against God. And questioning and doubting among yourselves. I can't see what you're doing, Lord, and I just don't understand why you're doing it to me, and I've had it, God. I've been way better than so-and-so, and why is she getting blessed and not me? And I can't believe so-and-so showed up to church in a new truck. Are you kidding me? You saw I would never say that, but you're feeling it. You see what I'm talking about here? You say, no, stop doing that. Because I need you to understand how powerful gratitude is. Powerful to heal things in your life. I truly believe gratitude healed me. Healed me. I'll talk to you about that in a second. But gratitude opens doors of opportunity. We'll talk about that in a second. Gratitude helps you recognize opportunity. Gratitude puts you in a mindset, in a position by which you can see God's hand moving where at once you couldn't. Why? Because it takes you from looking in the natural and it opens up your spiritual eyes so that you can see what God is doing 
because many times he moved. Listen to me. If you're going to understand what he's doing, you've got to see his hand moving in the spiritual so that you can gain confidence in the natural. But if you're looking with spiritual eyes, this is why the Bible says, walk by faith and not by Because many people say, well, I'll believe it when I see it. And God is saying, believe it, then you'll see it. Believe it, then you'll see it. And so this is a powerful spiritual warfare weapon, gratitude. Oh, it can't be that easy. See, some of us are going, what's going on in my life? What's happening? Everything is falling apart. I got all this stress. I got this and that. All these things are taking place. Oh, Lord, reveal that big demon that's come against me. Reveal it in Jesus' name that I may take it out. Come on. God's saying there ain't no demon coming against you. It's your attitude. You're doing it to yourself. Some of us are calling down warfare from heaven, and then God is going, I've given you the answer. Be grateful and unlock my power in your life. See, because when we're ungrateful and we complain, I need you to hear me on this. We open up the door to the destroyer. And our whole series is based on John 10.10. For I come to, to what? To the, no, no, no. Let, let, let's say it right. The enemy comes but to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that you might have life in abundance. So he gives you the two sides. He says, I've come to bless you, but the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy. Now watch what the Bible has to say about this as we go to um, Corinthians. Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, uh, chapter 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, 9 and 10. Now let, nor let us tempt Christ, that means don't let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. So we're talking about the children of Israel here, but I want you to pick up the principles. Nor complain. So you say, wait a minute, they were tempting God and they were complaining against God. As some of them also complained and were destroyed by the... Mm. So you're telling me, Pastor, when they complained, they opened up the door to the destroyer? The one that the, the Bible says comes to steal, kill, and... But how could this be? Well, let me show you a way. You ever seen couples start to complain about each other? You know, it's so, it's so funny how you get a little bit into a marriage, and then lo and behold, they start complaining. Well, he ain't all that, and I can't believe I married you, and why did you, why do you act like that? And you let yourself get out of shape, and you're not dating me anymore, and you're not this, and you're not that. Well, you know what? I bet somebody would want them. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Well, I can't believe you let yourself get out of shape. And you know what? When you, you used to serve me and you used to do this and you were pretty and you were this and you were that. And then I bet somebody would want them. And when you start complaining, you open up the door for the enemy to bring that someone. Because at the end of the day, he wants to destroy your marriage. And then all of a sudden, they start finding a little attention somewhere else, and they like it, and they start improving themselves. And next thing you know, they're a different person, and you're crying in my office saying, Pastor, how do I get her back? How do I get him back? How do I? I said, well, once you let the enemy in, it's hard to get him out. 
You say, you're advocating divorce? Of course not. I'm telling you how the enemy works. You open up doors. You can open up doors of complaining in your work. You can open up doors of complaining in your business. You can open up doors of complaining with your children. You can open up doors of destruction everywhere you go. And this is where the children of God did it. In the book of Numbers, chapter 21, it says this, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our souls loathe this worthless bread. Another version says worthless food. Another version puts it this way, And we detest this miserable food. Another version says this miserable, detestable manna. Manna was the bread God sent them from heaven. Do you realize who else was the bread of heaven? Do you, else, do you realize who else was the bread of heaven? Why did Moses not get into the promised land? Because out of frustration, he hit the rock when he was called to speak to it. But that's such a small mistake. Who does that rock represent? The one that brings forth living water. Jesus. Who are they complaining about when they complain about the bread of heaven? They're complaining about the type and shadow of who is to come. You say, Pastor, this is bad. Absolutely, this is bad. But not all of it was, oh, hey, well, let me finish verse 6. So they start complaining, and watch this. So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people died. In fact, thousands of them began to die. Because complaining brings death, and complaining grows it spreads to your children. It spreads to your loved ones. But not only that, you get good at what you practice. Did you know that? How many of us know we get good at what we practice? And in fact, there's research showing that this wasn't their first time. Why? Because they were so good at it. How do we know? Because research tells us that most people complain at least once every minute in every conversation they have. Not me, Pastor. I'm the one coming back and thanking Jesus. That's me. <laughs> See, complaining is tempting. Why is it tempting? Because it feels good. Why does it feel good? Because your body begins to do some things chemically and neurologically that can make it be addicting to you. It can be as addicting as smoking, eating too much, eating too much sugar, and other addictive things that we get involved with. See, our brain works in an efficient manner, meaning it likes to do things as quickly as possible, and so it, it, it remembers patterns. How does it remember patterns? It's called literally neurons that fire together, wire together is what neurologists say. And they say that when you have a thought Instead of having it traverse through all this difficulty, the, the, the brain will start creating a superhighway by which that thought can travel more efficiently, effectively, and it can happen quicker. 
And so whatever you do often, you'll do more often and more often and more often. So if you're a person that complains, you'll become more like a person that complains, that becomes more like a person that complains, that becomes more like a person that complains. And so you get really, really good at it. Now, this is what happens. When you become really good at complaining, you become really bad at being grateful. When you become really good at complaining, you become really good at being negative, and you have a hard time being positive. Well, that's just some people's bent. No, it has more to do. Watch. When you become really good at being negative and complaining, everything looks bad to you. And when an opportunity comes knocking, you think it's the tax man. You think it's someone, the bill collector. You think it's something negative. While the person that has trained his mind to be positive says, no, that's opportunity at the door. I'm going to take it for all it's worth. I'm going to grab hold of it. I'm going to ride this as far as I can. I'm going to believe for more. Oh, but they just happen to be at the right place at the right time. No, they happen to have their mind at the right place at the right time, and their perspective is one of seeing what's possible. You say, how do you know this? All you have to do is look at the evidence that this country provides day after day. What kind of evidence? If you are an immigrant or first generation, you have astronomically more opportunity to become a millionaire than someone who's been here five generations. Why? Because I don't care what immigrant from what part of the world, when you come here, all you see is opportunity. But those that have been here for a while, they've been so used to complaining and complaining and complaining, all they see is negativity. Right there. Research is showing these. You go, Pastor, well, how can I give myself the immigrant mindset? <laughs> you gotta be, you gotta be grateful. Because your brain works in that direction too. The more grateful you are, the better you get at it. Next thing you know, you see opportunity everywhere. Oh, it's everywhere. And you gotta start praying, Lord, show me which one to grab. I'm like a kid in a candy store. I can't I can't do it all. And God says, absolutely, come on. Amen. You'll say, Pastor, is that it? Well, isn't that enough? But the research from Stanford University has also shown that complaining shrinks the hippocampus of your brain. That's the part of your brain where you do your critical problem solving and intelligent thought. That means complaining makes you dumb. <laughs> you know what else it makes you? It damages this hippocampus, and this is scary because the hippocampus is where is the primary part of your brain, that area of your brain that is destroyed by dementia and Alzheimer's. You don't want to help that along. You want to be as healthy as possible there. You know what else it does? It releases powerful chemicals like cortisol, and cortisol heightens your blood pressure, and it heightens, it, it increases your, your blood sugar, and it, and it puts your body under stress because you're always in a fight-or-flight mode, and when you're complaining, this fight-or-flight is happening in you, and it's wrecking havoc on your health. Your immune system takes a dive, and you start to gain weight. See, I'm hitting the things that will really speak to our society. Gain weight. Stop the complaining immediately, right? <laughs> I mean, never mind that you might lose your brain, but <laughs> gain weight, no. <laughs> That's important. 
So what I'm telling you is they got good at this. You go back through the story of Numbers, and you'll see them complaining at every turn. They complained at every turn. You know what else they got good? They got good at from generation to generation because parents taught their kids how to complain, who taught their kids how to complain, who taught their kids how to complain, who stood before the Lord saying, I can't believe you brought us out here. Excuse me, you are writing the story of Exodus means there's always an exit with God. And you're talking about dying in the wilderness? No, he will give you a way even when there seems to be no way. You just have to trust his faithfulness. And when you trust his faithfulness, you can begin to praise him and thank him and be grateful even in the desert. Because he's doing something even when he's not doing something. Amen. Whoa. So, if you go back to Numbers 14, you find them complaining again. In fact, anywhere you land in Numbers, you'll find them complaining because they got good at it. It would be better for us to return to Egypt. They said to one another, let us select a leader to return to Egypt. But you know what's interesting? There's a couple of guys, Joshua in verse 6, and Caleb, who didn't participate. And God brought them as champions into his promise. As champions. You know what else is so funny about this? That in this story, God says, and in and the other story, God says, and the story of the children of Israel is what I'm saying. God says, let it be done to you according to your complaining words. You keep talking about dying out here, guess what? You will. Isn't it interesting? I think that still happens today because we can either speak in faith or we can speak in death. We can either say, God is with me and for me and I will succeed or nothing good ever happens to me. So, as we finish today, I want to leave you with this. Philippians 4, 6 says, be anxious about nothing, but in everything, there's that everything again, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. That means bring it to God. You know what's so awesome about this verse? It's what leads into, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do this. I've got this. God's going to take care of it. I don't know what he's up to, but I know he's up to something. So I'm going to relax. I'm not going to be anxious. And I'm going to begin to thank him for what he's doing, even though I don't see it. And you can thank him for what he has done because, Lord, you've been faithful. I know you are faithful, and I know you will be faithful. And so, Lord, in thanksgiving, I'm going to praise you. So in just a little bit, we're going to focus an entire day on Thanksgiving. I want to challenge you. Don't let it be just that day. Let it be every day of your life. That we, like Daniel, would rise morning, noon, and evening from our knees, having given God Thanksgiving. Having said, Lord, I don't know what today has for me, but I'm going to thank you ahead of time. 
And I'm going to believe that you have created me and uniquely, uniquely placed me in this position at this time, at this hour, for your perfect purpose. God, give me eyes to see what I cannot see in the physical. Open my spiritual eyes, as Paul said to the Ephesian church, that I may see the wonder of your love. And God, I believe I can do all things through your power. Holy Spirit, only go with me. Go with me. God, come on. Say, Pastor, that's me. I'm in. I'm in. 100%, I'm going to thank the Lord. Then let's start right now in this moment. You know, the act of communion is an act of thanksgiving. It's where we as Christians come back to the Lord. Lord, you healed us of more than leprosy. You healed us of a spiritual leprosy that we never could have healed ourselves from. We were washed by your blood. Your body was broken to give us life. Let us not dare disrespect this moment. As Christians, this is our coming back. Like the 10 lepers, one came back. This is us coming back saying, Lord, we remember what you did. And with one voice, we say thank you. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for allowing your body to be broken for me. Your blood to be shed. With great joy, we thank you, Lord Jesus. Have a great, wonderful Thanksgiving. Amen. I'll see you soon.